This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Williard. When I see tragedies unfold across the globe, and then governments taking advantage of them directly afterwards, my first thoughts aren't usually of a grand conspiracy, but instead of the now infamous Winston Churchill quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. This sentiment was certainly true back in 2018, after the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, claimed victory in an almost certainly skewed election, upon which protests broke out right across the country. Maduro witnessed the unfolding of these riots and instabilities and used this crisis to dissolve the Supreme Court and disband the national parliament in favor of simply creating his own parliament, one that was loyal to him, centralizing power within Venezuela in a way few others ever managed before, something likely unachievable without the crisis as a justification. And in response to these drastic moves, the United States imposed incredibly heavy sanctions onto Venezuela in hopes of punishing Maduro into better behavior. And if at the time Venezuela was driving in the wrong direction, these sanctions the US put onto the country really did push down the accelerator on Venezuela's journey off a cliff. Over the next two years, Venezuela would lose 75% of its GDP, become the murder capital of the world, and inflation would rise to 350,000%. But that was 2018, almost five years ago. These days, thanks to loans from China, a dollarization of the economy, and help from Russia and Iran, Venezuela has begun a slow but steady crawlback from the brink. And even just in the last year, the country experienced a higher growth rate than regional rival Argentina. The US had thrown the hardest sanctions it could at Venezuela. It even had 60 countries recognize the Venezuelan opposition as the legitimate rulers of the country. The Trump administration went as hard as they could, stopping only just short of a declaration of war. And yet, five years on, Maduro is still in power. China has gained more influence in the region than before, and the country with the world's largest oil reserves is barely outputting at a time when the world desperately needs it. Washington's big stick didn't work. So when a few months ago I heard rumors of the Biden administration opening up to the idea of normalizing relations with Venezuela in response to the oil crisis brought on by the war in Ukraine, that same quote rang through my head. Never let a good crisis go to waste. For Washington, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change the board, without being accused of being out to just help oil companies, or without Maduro having to make first big steps in order to start a conversation. It may have even been one of the only moments where politically opening oil fields was seen as helping Americans rather than cozying up to communists. But this window of opportunity is beginning to close. The oil markets are beginning to stabilize. An election in both Venezuela and the US is coming up. And after so much rhetoric on both sides, soon it may be too politically hot to touch. And with every month that passes, Venezuela becomes a little bit more stable at the moment, and therefore not as desperate to make large concessions to the US. Time is of the essence, and decisions need to be made. So what should the US do? Should Washington stick to its principles and denounce Maduro? and continue its maximum pressure campaign like it has in Cuba for the last 60 years? Or should it seek to use this moment in time to try and lessen Chinese influence throughout the region, lower the cost of oil to try and curb inflation before the election, and finally end the tragic situation imposed upon the people of Venezuela? It's a tough call, 
and one that balances morals, economics, and geopolitics, and they're the questions we're going to be asking today. But to help us understand how we got into this situation in the first place, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Never let a crisis go to waste. goes back at least 20 years to when uh, Hugo Chavez was elected president of Venezuela at the end of the last century. And ever since then, really, there's been an ongoing political crisis. When Chavez came to power over the wreckage of a two-party system, which had really fallen apart amid massive economic crisis, and began to implement what was initially a very popular but increasingly authoritarian political system. And as the opposition got going, got more organized, and and people started to see the direction in which Chavez was taking things, there were more and more protests, and Chavez in return became more authoritarian and so on. Phil Gunson is the Andes Project Senior Analyst for the International Crisis Group. Phil researches and produces Crisis Group's policy materials and conducts advocacy on political issues in the Andes region, focusing primarily on the Venezuelan political situation. He spent almost 40 years reporting on Latin America for a wide variety of news media, including the BBC, The Guardian, Newsweek, and The Economist. On top of this, he's also authored two books in the region, including a two-volume dictionary of Latin America and the Caribbean. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. Initially, it worked pretty well for him in the sense that uh, this is an oil-based economy. And in the oil boom from, let's say, around 2003 to 2013, when Chavez died, there was plenty of money to go around. And uh, people were quite happy in the sense that although there was a lot of corruption, and as I say, the system was increasingly authoritarian, dictatorial even, Chavez was able to keep people, the mass of the population at least, fairly happy by, by distributing all this oil wealth. All that went very badly wrong with the death of Chavez from cancer in 2013 and falling oil prices. All of a sudden, the oil boom came to an end. The economy was in bad shape because the government had essentially thought that the money was going to keep on rolling in forever and had spent it, you know, had indebted the country, implemented an economic policy that really made things very difficult to resolve when the oil price fell. So Maduro, who took over from Chavez and is a lot less charismatic, to say the least, faced this situation where he was less popular to begin with, but also he didn't have the money to, to keep people happy. And so we've had an increasing economic crisis with an economy that shrunk by 75 to 80% since Maduro came to power. We went through a period of hyperinflation, which threatens to come back now. And with the lack of money, Maduro was really left with no option in order to stay in power, but to ramp up the repression. So at this part of the story, we reach about 2018-2019, a point where hyperinflation kicks in in Venezuela. And Venezuelan society begins to frankly collapse. People start paying a month's rent for a roast chicken. The murder rate climbs to the highest anywhere in the world. And a refugee crisis begins that impacts all of South and Latin America. In the end, inflation peaks at 350,000%. And this point here, so where most of us kind of just wrote Venezuela off. But then, Caracas began to turn things around slowly. And by early 2020, inflation was down to around 2,900%, continuing with the trend to get all the way down to 137% by 2022. Now, this is still nowhere near a good situation, 
but a vast improvement from the days of 350,000% inflation. So can you take us through what happened here? How did Venezuela manage to drive their economy off of a cliff? And how are they slowly starting to winch it back up now? The economic policy that Chavez applied was very largely to blame for the problems that emerged when the oil price came down. In other words, that, for example, when Chavez came to power, there was a system in place put there by the previous government that required the government to set aside money during an oil boom in order to anticipate the downturn. Chavez never did that. So essentially, he spent all the money. The money that should have gone into that fund, which would have been three or four hundred billion if they if they'd done it properly, it would have smoothed out this this downturn. Um, so they didn't do that. But not only that, but they implemented a whole bunch of policies that that wrecked the economy. In fact, I mean, they introduced extremely severe price and exchange controls. They expropriated a lot of the private sector, uh, both in terms of thousands of or millions, in fact, millions of hectares of, of productive farmland, they expropriated industrial companies. The state essentially took over a very large part of the, of the economy, in addition to the fact that the state already controlled the oil industry. And that led to these expropriations and the price controls and so on, led to a situation where there was very little in terms of basic goods for people to buy. You know, food became very scarce in order to get reasonable supplies of food, you really had to be plugged into the black market. And because of the scarcity, of course, that fueled inflation. People had the money to buy food in those days, but there wasn't any to buy. So the price of goods started to break through these price controls until, as, as you say, there was an extremely severe hyperinflationary crisis, which the government eventually decided to resolve by, in practice, dismantling these controls, but they're still there on the statute book. So there's no there's no telling whether they might, you know, suddenly decide to re-implement controls like that. And this is a good demonstration of one of the troubles with price controls on basic goods. Whilst yes, it keeps the price low on paper, the lack of profits for the people selling the goods means that companies don't have the extra capital to buy additional supply from abroad or hire on more staff to run their factories 24 hours a day rather than eight hours a day to meet the additional demand for their goods. Therefore, they don't make the extra supply to meet the demand. And if supply doesn't meet the demand, that's where shortages form. And where you find shortages, you often find black markets. But whilst there were shortages in basic goods in Venezuela, one thing they didn't have any shortages of was oil. In fact, Venezuela sits on top of the largest oil reserves in the world. But if that's the case, how did they get into this situation? How did a country like Venezuela, or even its state oil company, Pedavesa, go bankrupt while sitting on top of the largest oil deposits in the world? In the good old days, oil was something like 97%, oil exports, I should say, something like 97% of all foreign earnings. Um, oil was absolutely crucial. In a way, the origins of this go back to the early days of Chavez, when Chavez decided that the oil company was a black box, that it was a law unto itself, that it was being run in such a way as to satisfy the interests of a small clique, but it wasn't doing, it wasn't providing the money that the mass of the population needed. And so he decided to take over PDVSA. He decided that instead of being run as a conventional commercial company, it should be run on political grounds, on political criteria. That was really one of the things that lay behind the coup attempt against him in April of 2002 that, that nearly succeeded. And in the wake of that coup, 
the oil industry, most of its management was very much set against these ideas of, of Chavez and a, and a good part of the workforce too. And they went on strike and they pretty much shut down oil production in 2003. And in response to that, Chavez sacked half of the workforce, or more than half of the workforce, something like 20,000 people. Most of them, of course, people who were absolutely vital to the, to the good running of the oil industry. These were people who had between them you know, centuries of experience in, in all the different aspects of, of, of running an oil industry. And it's never really recovered from that. There has been something of a recovery in terms of production to get it back almost to where it was when Chavez came to power. But the problem is that in that period, under this management that was essentially political and extremely corrupt, a lot of money was stolen. A lot of people who didn't really know much about running an oil industry were put in charge of it. And that began a long, slow process of decline, which has been exacerbated by US sanctions to the point where if when Chavez came to power, I think oil production was something like 3.2 million barrels a day. Now it's down around under 700,000 barrels a day. And, it, and it's been lower than that even at some point. And, and it's, in very, it's in such bad shape that really there's no way that it can be recovered unless, number one, the US lifts sanctions, and number two, they start running it in a more, in a more professional way. And this, from the people I spoke with in the industry, led to a perpetuating cycle. The engineers left Petavesa and the political appointments came in. And these new appointments knew far less about how to run an oil field than the previous generation of engineers, and in so, lacked the ability to see small problems forming in the equipment and fix them cheaply before they grew into big problems. They'd also refuse to do things like short shutdowns to fix what should be 12-hour issues, and instead let them fester into far worse problems, as most of these political appointments simply wanted to outdo the other fields in output, with the hopes of currying favour with the boss and being promoted upstairs. And then when these sanctions kicked in, and they struggled to find parts they needed, and also couldn't sell their oil to some of their best customers, extra money in the industry began to dry up, and things began to get perpetually worse. So with no money spare, the machines stopped being maintained and repaired, and instead, to try and continue to meet those outputs, were driven harder and harder by people who frankly didn't know how to use them properly. And this is what caused a lot of Petavase's machines to start breaking, but as these breakages began to pile up, oil prices continued to fall. And in desperate hopes to continue to meet these oil outputs and keep people upstairs happy, they pushed these machines even longer, hoping that if they can make it through this price dip, when the price rises, they'll have the money to repair them later. After all, the entire Venezuela economy at this point is relying on Petavase to make a profit. But the price of oil didn't turn around fast enough, meaning less output and less money, meaning that even less was put aside for maintenance on the remaining machines. Eventually, the Venezuelan state would turn to actors like Russia, China, and Iran looking for cash to try and repair or get some of these fields going again. But with the state of the Venezuelan economy and the state of Petavesa, they had very little left apart from the oil on the ground to offer as collateral to these players to secure loans. Is there a reason that Maduro would turn to these sorts of players hoping for loans rather than trying to make good with the US? I don't think Maduro's had a change of heart. I think he's still committed to the idea that Venezuela should be run as a socialist economy. But of course, the imposition of sanctions by the United States particularly the very heavy oil sanctions and financial sanctions that were imposed by Trump in 2019, forced them to 
have a rethink. I mean, they basically realized that if they didn't do something pretty drastic, then they weren't going to survive, either economically or, or politically. You know, the, the case of China is interesting in the sense that China gave Venezuela massive loans in the period when oil prices were high. And those loans essentially became unpayable. Venezuela clearly doesn't have the money to pay the Chinese back. The deal that they set up, whereby the loans would supposedly be paid off, involved Venezuela sending oil to China or oil products to China as a means of, of repaying the loans. But there isn't any longer, I mean, they now nowadays they don't have either the money to pay the loans back or the oil, of course. So that's, that's made things a little difficult for the, for the Chinese. But the other thing that's happened, well, the various things that have happened in response to the sanctions, Venezuela started trying to find ways to get around the sanctions. The U.S. objective, obviously, was to stop Venezuela selling its oil on the international market completely. But the Russians and the Iranians came to their aid. And of course, both those countries know a thing or two about how to evade sanctions. And in, for a while, that worked reasonably well. The, the Russians were acting as intermediaries. The Iranians have been supplying Venezuela with some of the things they need in order to keep the oil industry going in exchange for, in exchange for crude and, and, and oil products and payments in gold sometimes. And then the Russia-Ukraine war came along, um, which made things much more difficult for Venezuela because, of course, the Russian banking system is now sanctioned. And that was the system that the Venezuelans were using to get around these US sanctions. And in addition to that, Russia itself is undercutting Venezuela on the Asian market because now that Russia can't sell its oil to the West, it needs to send it eastwards and it needs to send it eastwards with discounts. And that oil, the Russian oil, is not only nearer to Asia geographically, but it's also better quality oil. So that's made things difficult as well for the Venezuelans. They're now looking at the situation where the oil industry is not quite paralyzed, but it's certainly operating at a fraction of its former level. And as I say, they need to negotiate the lifting of sanctions or at least sanctions relief in order for the oil industry to get going again. At this point, we come to the 2018 elections, where Maduro, some would say dubiously won the election and was looking like he would secure another term. But many citizens of Venezuela were not happy with the outcome of the election and began to push back against Maduro's government, calling for him to step aside and the opposition to take power. In response, Maduro dissolved the Supreme Court and restacked it with loyalists, and then used that Supreme Court to dissolve the parliament, the National Assembly, and instead create a new parliament, the National Constituent Assembly, going on to stack this new parliament full of Maduro supporters, therefore giving him control of all three branches of government. The West decried these moves, and many nations began backing opposition leader Juan Guaido, with Guaido traveling the world shaking the hands of dozens of Western leaders over the next few years. But how popular was he in Venezuela? Why did they pick Guaido? And did Guaido's closeness with the West help or hinder his message back home? Guaido was very popular when all of this began. It looked as if the opposition had finally found a formula for getting rid of Maduro with massive international support, obviously primarily from, from the United States. And even at times uh, from Donald Trump, implicit threats that uh, he'd be prepared to take, you know, to intervene militarily in Venezuela to, to oust Maduro. So Guaido's popularity was running at well in excess of 60% at one point in 2019. That policy, of course, that what the US calls maximum pressure policy failed to oust Maduro. And over time, that popularity of Guaido's has 
dwindled to almost nothing. And I don't know, is less popular than Maduro himself. And as the policy kind of ran into the sand, as it became evident that this was not going to work, of course, all the countries, as I say, primarily the European countries and then some of Venezuela's neighbors in Latin America that, that recognized Guaido as the legitimate president, began to see that this was going nowhere and slowly, gradually have restored relations with Maduro. So effectively, even before Guaido's interim presidency was dissolved by, by the opposition itself, there were only a handful, there's maybe half a dozen countries that still recognize Guaido as the president. And the only important ones really were the US, Canada and the United Kingdom. And this trend is probably likely to continue with a new pink tide of left-leaning governments coming into power across South America, particularly with Lula da Silva coming into power in Brazil and Gustavo Petro in power in Colombia. With this in mind, do you think we're likely to see the final end of hostilities toward Venezuela from these countries, or possibly even a concerted effort to get Venezuela back on its own feet? Well, it's, it's certainly good news from Maduro's point of view. Until relatively recently, the region was very hostile. And of course, Colombia and Brazil are the two biggest countries on Venezuela's borders. They were both run by extremely hardline governments, the Duque government in Colombia, the Bolsonaro government in Brazil, that had cut off relations completely with Venezuela and were really aligned with um, the Trump policy. And so it's good news from Maduro's point of view that they're now, they've now restored relations, that really they're, they're not demanding. I mean, whilst both of them, I mean, both Lula and Petro would say, you know, they support negotiations towards some kind of democratic transition, but neither of them is putting a lot of pressure on Maduro to, um, to actually make those concessions. But of course, these things are temporary. I mean, you know, right now, the majority of governments in the region are on the left. That will change. In fact, Argentina, which is one of the most prominent left-wing governments at the moment in South America, is due very shortly to have a presidential election, which will almost certainly see the return of the right. And that, so it will swing back. I don't think it represents a permanent solution, if you like, to the relationship between um, Venezuela or the Venezuelan government and its neighbors. On the other hand, I also think it's very, very unlikely that we're going to see anything resembling the hostility from the region that we saw while Trump was in power. Uh, I think most countries have concluded that whether you like Maduro or not, it makes no sense to isolate Venezuela, that the, the, the way forward it necessarily involves having relations, opening embassies, and trying to bring, you know, by persuasion at least, trying to bring Venezuela more back into the into the Latin American fold in terms of its membership in multilateral organizations. Chile, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina all talk about bringing Venezuela back into the region. And that means not cutting ties with countries like Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, and so on, but at least minimizing the, the impact. And nobody or very few of the governments in the region want to see Venezuela permanently aligned with Moscow and Beijing. And all of this roughly brings us to today, with the US now setting the tables for talks on sanctions relief with Caracas, Venezuela's neighbors normalizing relations, the economy somewhat normalizing, and even the first US companies beginning to return to Venezuelan shores. So do you think the time of crisis for Venezuela is now in the rear vision mirror, or are things still far too shaky under the surface to make any sort of definitive calls about Venezuela? It's still pretty shaky. I mean, certainly in the last year and a half or so, we've seen improvements here in a number of different 
respect. I mean, the, the scarcity that I mentioned before, you know, scarcity of basic goods, food and so on, is no longer the problem. The problem now is mass poverty. You know, the government doesn't produce statistics on almost anything. But when you talk to independent sources, there's probably, you know, four, four out of five Venezuelan households are living in poverty. Uh, in extreme poverty, in fact. I mean, you know, to the extent of not being able to put enough food on the table. Uh, more than 90% of people are in relative poverty. There's only a very, very small segment of the population that's doing okay. But the fact is that the trend turned around in 2022. We'd seen, ever since 2013, when Maduro was elected, you know, nearly a decade of continual economic economic decline. The economy shrank every single year. Last year it grew. Of course, it's growing from a very, very low level. But that combined with the fact that now, you know, the economy is partly dollarized. So a lot of people, even in you know, in relatively modest jobs, are earning in dollars. That makes an enormous difference to that particular part of the population. It's not resolved the problem for the bulk of, of the population. But on the other hand, people at least are seeing that things started to get better. The problem is that this economic opening that they achieved by lifting the price and exchange controls, by dollarizing and so on, and by allowing the private sector more leeway, that has a ceiling uh, because of sanctions and because, of, because there's no, been no overall economic reform. And so now what we're seeing is a really serious threat of, of going backwards. The econ- um, inflation, which had declined substantially, is now back above 300% a year. I think Venezuela is currently the country with the highest inflation level in the world. And that inflation is accelerating. What that means is that a government which has, doesn't have the money to put people's wages up is facing um, increasingly significant protests, particularly from public sector workers. So what we're in danger of seeing is the slowing, I think we are seeing already, the slowing of the economic recovery, a return to possibly to even to hyperinflation, and the reversal to some extent of some of the steps that we've seen in over the last couple of years. And in turn, what that may mean is it, it obviously it has a political effect too, because to the extent that protests grow, people are discontented, Maduro is less likely to be able to open things up politically. And so right now, to answer your question, I think the situation that we're seeing right now is that everybody's pretty nervous that things might start going backwards quite quickly. So Caracas now stands at an economic crossroads. Should they, A, stick with their hard-won ideological partners and continue to patron nations like China or Russia, nations that helped Venezuela get through its darkest days, or B, Should they sit down at the table with the United States, a nation that is exacerbating the misery the citizens are going through today, hoping to convince Washington to give sanctions relief, seeing this option as a way to hopefully rebuild even a fraction of Venezuela's once gargantuan economic prowess? Remember, this was a country that was once the richest in all of South America, and a powerhouse throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, and Maduro would love to gain back some of that economic weight, but to do so, would acquire the US repealing sanctions. So if Maduro does go to the table to sit down with the United States, what would Washington demand for Maduro? And would Maduro be willing to give that away? But to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part two, dollarizing a disaster. 
Well, I don't think we should overstate the change. We should start by making that clear. The United States has not lifted any significant sanctions at this point. It has lifted a few targeted sanctions against Venezuelan individuals, and it made an agreement to allow Chevron to help build up Venezuelan oil production capacity. But the vast majority of the sanctions are still being levied against Venezuela, including the embargo that the Donald Trump administration declared, which is kind of a Cuba-style embargo. Ben Norton is the founder and editor-in-chief of the Geopolitical Economy Report, an independent news website dedicated to publishing original journalism and analysis, specializing primarily on Latin America. He was also previously a politics staff writer and reporter for Salon and Alternet, and a regular contributor to the media watchdog Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. And on top of that, he was also the assistant editor of The Grey Zone and a contributor at The Intercept, along with many other publications. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. So thus far, we've seen a lot of speculation in the financial press about the possibility of sanctions being lifted. I think if the US government is going to do so, it's going to do so within the next two years, maybe sooner rather than later because of the upcoming presidential election. Now, why are we having this discussion? The, the reality, I think, is both economic and political. Economically, the US has been trying to reduce oil prices internationally as a way also to reduce inflation, because, of course, when commodity prices go up, especially fossil fuels. But since the midterm elections, actually, oil prices have decreased. They're still not as low as the US would like them to be, but they're also not as high as they were at the peak right after the US and the EU imposed sanctions on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. So at this moment, certainly I think the US would like to see Venezuelan oil production increase as a way to stabilize oil prices. But at the same time, US oil producers don't want prices to fall too low because then they might lose money. And especially if they're engaged in new exploration projects, they don't want the prices to get too low. Although I do think it's a possibility that the US would lift some sanctions, and that brings us to the political element. Venezuela has been holding opposition talks or talks with the opposition that are sponsored in Mexico and discussion of holding a new election. And if there there is a political breakthrough in those talks in Mexico, then the U.S. might use lifting some sanctions as a form of collateral, as a way of you know pressuring the Venezuelan government to engage in these different reforms and hold new elections. So. There are a few th factors to consider here. Of course, the United States also would like to try to draw to try to drive a wedge in between Venezuela and Russia and China. It's no secret that the Venezuelan government is very close to Russia and China. So geopolitically, the U.S. would like to try to at least try to drive a wedge between countries and China and Russia. In Venezuela, I think it's very unlikely, but it's certainly something that's in the U.S. political calculus right now. So the exact terms around sanctions relief are still yet to be finalized. But from what we know so far, the US is putting most of the stipulations around achieving a democratic election inside Venezuela in 2024. There is a lot of talk though about putting some economic stipulations into the deal. So do you think there'll also be stipulations on Venezuela about diversifying the Venezuelan economy? Something key to rebuilding a long-lasting and stable Venezuela rather than just a skeleton petrostate? Or do you think these talks will mostly just focus on Venezuelan domestic oil extraction and give little concern to rebuilding a more stable Venezuela? Yeah, well, this is the question. It's, it's a very difficult question to assess. We should keep in mind that Venezuela has been a petrostate really since the 1940s, well before Hugo Chavez was ever even born. And it has been a country where the vast majority of its exports do come from fossil fuels. And 
you know, especially in, in the last 20 years or so, it's been over 90% of export revenue. So obviously Venezuela is open to pretty much any possibility that could bring about the lifting of sanctions, which is why, despite the fact that the government has still pledged to continue moving forward with a leftist political and economic program, it has allowed some privatizations as part of what they call the, the Anti-Embargo Act, this legislation that was passed by the National Assembly. And they also allowed some foreign transnationals like Chevron to operate just to bring back oil production capacity. Obviously, oil, the oil sector needs a lot of investment. It needs a lot of upkeep. It needs a lot of funding for new exploration projects. So they, there has been some element of foreign capital that's been allowed to come in to reactivate that. It's really hard to say what the preconditions would be. I mean, at this point, the Venezuelan government has been willing to make a lot of reforms. And the Venezuelan government has, in the past several years, going back even before Hugo Chavez died in 2013, has talked about the importance of the diversification of its economy. Hugo Chavez created a program, in fact, when he was president between 1999 and 2013, in which he basically would just give people free land if they would be farmers. I've spent a lot of time in Venezuela. I've visited communes and I've visited farms. And I mean, there, there are people who live and work on these farms and try to increase local food production and are given land and supplies and materials by the government. But the reality is that it's very hard to convince people, especially young people who live in the cities, to do that because they don't. It's, it is hard work living in the countryside, being a farmer. And most people just prefer living in the cities and having like a service sector job. I will say that another factor that doesn't get reported on a lot, but it has gotten some attention in the financial press, is help from Iran because you know Iran has been under sanctions since 1979, since the Iranian Revolution, and it also is a major agricultural producer, unlike Venezuela. And Iran has provided a lot of technical support with the oil sector, but it also has provided support for agricultural production. And Iran has actually increased its food exports to Venezuela. And Iran has actually opened up a supermarket chain. Well, the other major question regarding this economic crossroads is around the large debt currently owed by Venezuela toward China. In the heat of the crisis, China gave large loans to Caracas to get its oil industry back up and running. And those debts to China could either be paid back in USD or Yuan, as the Venezuelan Bolivar was far too weak and unstable to be relied on as a currency. And if they couldn't pay back with money, Venezuela could pay its debt by China getting first dibs on the oil Venezuela produces. So if we fast forward to today, and Chevron pushes ahead with this deal here, Chevron is going to want to get oil out of the ground in Venezuela. So are they going to want to either give Venezuela the USD in order to pay China back, or will they push Venezuela to simply default on its debts to China and ignore the agreement they made with Beijing, giving China first priority on the oil produced in Venezuela? Or will China be willing to overlook some of this in order to maintain a long-term partnership here with Venezuela? China has political and economic interests with Venezuela, and they're clearly, they have a strategic partnership the way they put it. And China is not going to allow Venezuela to collapse. We have to acknowledge, and I'll say this, just interviewing a lot of people on the ground, there is a strong base for Chavismo, despite the very deep economic crisis. The Venezuelan government has built nearly 5 million housing units, despite the very difficult economic situation. I mean, it still does maintain social services. The the uh, public transportation sector has actually is actually pretty surprising. I mean, the metro is is quite 
efficient. It's quite clean. It's better than the New York Metro. So, I mean, there is a strong base still for Chavismo, despite the economic difficulties. But another significant factor for why the government didn't fall is because it does have allies. And I think we should just keep in mind that the situation geopolitically today is very different. It's the most similar situation would be during the, the first Cold War, right? Where, you know, there were countries that, that had other options. They, they could work with the Soviet Union. They could work with China. They could work with, you know, the non-aligned movement. And we're going back to a situation today where, you know, Venezuela has had a lot of support from China and also Russia. The Russian support has been more militarily, more military support and political, but economic support from China. And China has also been now experimenting with new forms of assistance. So not even, not just debt, but also, uh, for instance, currency swap lines. That's what China has been doing now with Argentina, where the Argentine Central Bank will have an account and it'll it'll take billions of yuan from China. And then the Argentine Central Bank opens an account in China's Central Bank and and puts in pesos and then they have to pay back that money in currency swap. It's basically a, a way of giving loans, but without a foreign currency. So China has been experimenting with new forms of providing assistance and finance to countries that are suffering from debt and devaluation of their currency like Venezuela and Argentina. So I think they're going to probably experiment with new in interesting alternative forms of, of support. But we have to keep in mind that for China, it's not just economic. I mean, the thing is that the Chinese financial system is state owned. The four largest banks are state owned. A lot of these decisions are they're not purely economic. It's not about just making money. It's, it's also about political reasons. And China is, of course, a major importer, uh, the world's largest importer of oil and gas and doesn't have significant fossil fuel reserves itself. So what we, Venezuela, uh, Venezuela is always going to be an important energy partner for China, which is going to make sure it can diversify its energy sources. Right now in the streets of Caracas, quite a lot of the Venezuelan citizens are using the US dollar as their day-to-day -day currency, as it's much more stable than the Bolivar. But whilst using USD in your economy keeps prices stable, it also removes the levers and abilities of the Venezuelan central bank to preempt or assist any economic crisis inside the Venezuelan economy. You can't flood the market with cash to stimulate your economy if you don't own the cash in the first place. So how long do you think it will be before most citizens go back to using the Bolivar as their main method of transactions? This is a very difficult question. I mean, you know, the economic reactivation we've seen in the past few years is pretty significant, but that it's not necessarily leaning toward total integration with the U.S. financial system. Again, it's a lot of it's more integration with China, Russia, Iran. I mean, the, the, there is this contradiction where the where Venezuela's use of the dollar, at least in everyday economic activity, is leading to this dollarization. But at the same time, we're also seeing a kind of yuanization. And this is something we see around the world where at least the government and certain state institutions are using currencies like the yuan and the Russian ruble. And China has made this part of its political and economic strategy. Venezuela has also launched its own a digital currency backed by oil that's that's a government backed digital currency called the Petro and they've experiment they've also been at the forefront of experimenting with this thing that's all over the financial press these days which is central bank digital currencies so what we're seeing in, in Venezuela is really just kind of this laboratory for different monetary experiences on the ground in Venezuela it's it's indisputably true you can see it in the streets that a lot of people use dollars but according to government data, 
most digital tr most transactions in the Venezuelan economy are still digital and they still do involve the Bolivar despite the inflation. And one of the reasons that is, is because the Venezuelan government created something called the Patria system, which means like a motherland system. And it's basically, a, it was a, a welfare system where because of the insane rates of inflation, the government would give people these cards and, you know, working class and poor Venezuelans, they would get these cards and then the government would just give them money digitally on the card. And that way the government could continue to provide social support for people to buy, you know, different products and, and try to increase aggregate demand. But because, of course, if you're paying them with paper currency and then that currency devalues so quickly, it's it's been it's very difficult to do so. So what was incredible in my experience in Venezuela is seeing how, for instance, when I was there in, in 2019, I spent about six months in Venezuela at the peak of the inflation crisis and the sanctions. And everyone in the streets uses cards. So if, for instance, if you're in, if you're like in the street in Venezuela and there's a guy like with a cart and he's selling eggs and, and plantains and fruit, like a working class guy, he has like his phone and he has like a little um, slider on his phone and then you just pay with your card. And a lot of people still do pay with Bolivares because that's what they're paid in. So there has been a significant dollarization of the Venezuelan economy and the government actually did allow Venezuelan private banks to open euro dollar accounts so that you can open bank accounts in dollars. But what's not known as well is the Venezuelan government has also allowed banks to open accounts in other foreign currencies, especially the Chinese yuan and even the Russian ruble. So it's really just like this big catch bag. With, I mean, they're basically trying everything to see what will stick. The dollar is very prevalent wherever you go. I mean, even countries where the dollar is not technically an official state-recognized currency, like, for instance, in El Salvador or Ecuador, it's still common to see people pay with $20 U.S. bills because they get remittances, right? So, and Euro-dollar accounts are all over Latin America. I have bank accounts in dollars in Latin America, and I haven't had any problem with that. This is something that Sultan Pozar has been writing about at Credit Suisse. We're seeing a new multipolar financial system. And in Latin America, in Brazil and Venezuela and Argentina, we're seeing a lot of experiments in the use of foreign currencies. And I think that's only going to increase in the, in the decades to come. It's fair to say that a lot of these problems will stem from the US sanctions currently in place on Venezuela. But would removing them actually solve all the problems we're talking about here? If the US does, let's say, tomorrow repeal all the sanctions on Venezuela and allow unlimited US companies to operate inside the country, would many US companies outside of the oil sector actually take that offer up? Would we see a return to the economy of the 80s if the sanctions would disappear? If the US does lift some sanctions, I don't think that many companies are very interested. There will be some interest in working with PDVSA, the Venezuelan state oil company, but Maduro has made it clear that he's not just going to do mass privatizations. He's following the Chinese model, which is state control and, and direct direction of the economy, but allowing foreign capital in for certain investment, for certain technological support. And I think that's what his Chinese economic advisors are telling him. Chevron has come in, but if you look at the 
policies passed by the Venezuelan government, they've made it clear that they're only talking about five or 10% of ownership of these industries and these companies to foreign companies. So they're not talking about 50 plus percent ownership. They're not talking about actual, you know, mass privatization and, and foreign ownership. The, the state is still going to maintain, it's still going to be the majority sh shareholder. So I think what we're seeing again is, is a move back toward like a more mixed economy. Although again, the Venezuelan economy Excluding the oil sector, it was still always mostly a mixed economy with a huge private sector. And what Venezuela is now is trying to do is, is to follow the Chinese model. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see a massive turnaround coming in, in the next few years to come. I think that the U.S. is going to lift some sanctions and there's going to be some investment by U.S. oil companies and, and other foreign oil companies. But I think what really is going to happen is that Venezuela is going to economically continue to integrate more with the BRICS bloc and the Eurasian bloc. And it's going to be an example of this new multipolar financial economic order. The U.S. currently has an interesting experiment unfolding right here in Venezuela. You see, as any economist will tell you, the US sanctions were devastating to the Venezuelan economy in the beginning. But the country is starting to claw its way back from that position through help from China, Russia, and Iran. Three players, the US would rather not see have much influence in this region. By this point, Washington must know that the maximum pressure strategy won't solve the issue here. After all, Cuba's been under crushing sanctions since 1961, and, well, they're still going. So the decision has to be made. Should they A, ignore the lessons from Cuba and continue down this path of maximum pressure, hoping that China doesn't approach Venezuela and call in some of those favors, with an event that would risk Venezuela becoming a springboard for China into Latin America and the Caribbean? Or B, should they begin to try a series of carrots rather than sticks and actually begin building up the Venezuelan economy so they aren't as reliant on China? See, on one hand, bringing Venezuela back to economic stability will not only ease the refugee crisis throughout the region or Venezuela's reliance on drug money, but it will also reduce the influence of China in the Venezuelan economy. But by doing this, it will more than likely secure Maduro's position on Venezuela's throne. And if we start thinking long-term, in the past, a strong Venezuela has been a direct competitor with the United States for influence throughout the Caribbean and Central America. So does the US want to build up Venezuela to simply be competing with them 20 years from now? Should the US bring Venezuela back from the cold and accept Maduro's position in the country, or should they continue down a path that, frankly, after 62 years in Cuba, hasn't achieved its intended result? When we answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. What's thicker, oil or ideology? Let's look at both sides. First of all, the United States, since the election of Joe Biden, has been quietly sending signals that it's willing to reconsider its policy towards Venezuela, the, the so-called Trump maximum pressure strategy of, of full-on sanctions uh, that prohibited both the Venezuelan government and the state oil company, PDVSA, from raising capital in international capital markets, as well as uh, restrictions on trade uh, with any Venezuelan state company. 
And so they've been looking for a signal to do that. And quite frankly, the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine provided somewhat of an opportunity so that it didn't just look like the U.S. was making an unrequited, if you will, even a unilateral concession. But the truth is, is that it'll take a long time before Venezuela actually fills the global energy needs that have been created by the curtailment of Russian exports of gas and oil. According to a Chatham House study that we did, uh, it will take uh, basically between 78 to $128 billion of foreign investment to get Venezuela back up to the point where it's producing 3 million barrels of oil a day, which is what it was producing in 2013. Uh, right now, it's producing about 700,000 barrels a day. So the truth is, is even you know, in the short term, turning around Venezuela's oil production would just make a small dent in any sort of price spikes in, in global markets and needs within Europe. But that said, it, it clearly provides a nice cover. It, it demonstrates a, a global uh, reaction to larger geostrategic issues beyond just Venezuela. And so in that sense, uh, for a policy that the Biden administration had been itching to change, this uh, provided a good opportunity to do it. Chris Sabatini is a senior research fellow for Latin America, the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. He's also a frequent contributor to policy journals and newspapers specializing in Latin American foreign policy. Chris has also testified multiple times for the US Senate and House of Representatives, as well as founded and directed the Global Americas Think Tank. On top of this, he's also a senior director of policy at the Americas Society and the Council of the Americas, and chair the organization's rule of law panel and Cuba working groups. And particularly prevalent to today's conversation, he's also a senior member of the EU and US delegations negotiating with the Venezuelans on this and many other issues at the moment. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program for his seventh appearance on the show. It's, it's going to be a slow game and it's closely tied to the long-standing objectives of the U.S. and much of the international community to promote improvements in human rights and to provide for democratic elections, especially in the upcoming presidential elections in 2024. On Venezuela's side, it was the sanctions that probably brought it back to the table. Poverty is estimated to be at 80 percent. More than 7 million people have fled Venezuela. It is in a dire economic situa situation for most of the country. Having said that, while hyperinflation is returning and there's been slight economic growth, the economy overall is contracted by two thirds. Most of its main markets for crude oil have been cut off because of sanctions. And actually, because of the Russian invasion and sanctions on Russia, uh, Venezuela has lost a large um, portion of its market in China, which is where it's shipping illegally uh, its, its oil to. So it you know, came back to the table for economic reasons and also for the sanctions reasons, but it's done so grudgingly and you know, it's, it's not going to be an easy task to get it to the sorts of conditions and demands that the U.S. and largely the international community and the Venezuelan opposition would like. It was only a few months ago now that Maduro was sitting in Tehran, signing deals with the Iranians and giving speeches to the crowd about the anti-imperialist struggle the two countries were currently fighting. And yet, here we are a few months later, with Maduro putting out feelers for deals with the United States and allowing Chevron to operate inside the country. So is this the end of the anti-imperialist rhetoric coming from Maduro, or is Maduro hoping to say one thing to one crowd and say another thing to another? Yeah, it's, it's a good point, and, and clearly, you know, Venezuela does belong in, in that sort of club of pariah states internationally. It does so because it shares a lot of their perspectives on, on anti-imperialism, on sticking it to the Yanks and the Western world, basically sort of cooperating in a number of issues, whether it's in, in multilateral organizations like the United Nations, thwarting you know, efforts directly and indirectly, say, for example, in the UN Human Rights Council, investigating human rights abuses, 
So it shares those interests, along with China, in fact. But having said that, it, 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 Iran is not the preferred market for uh, Venezuelan crude. It, it, in fact, Iran pumps its own crude. So there's limits in terms of how far these alliances with these fringe, as I say, pariah regimes can go. Um, Russia, Iran, you know, they, they may, even North Korea at times, they may agree with them in terms of general worldview and their, their sense of victimization. But the truth is, is in terms of their long-term interests, economic, and even in terms of diplomatic, Venezuela in particular craves uh, international um, legitimacy. It, it really, we saw this when he, um, when the government also went to meet with Macron and, and also when Maduro was in the um, COP27 meetings in Egypt, he shamelessly tried to sidle up to Macron and to John Kerry. You know, he, he wants to try to you know, sell the Bolivarian revolution, especially now that the interim government of, of Juan Guaido has, has been um, disbanded as being the legitimate government of Venezuela. Rhetoric is all good, but economics is where the rubber meets the road. And with the US beginning to dip their toes into the water here in Venezuela by allowing Chevron to begin operating inside the country, that brings up a difficult decision for Caracas to either keep working with Chevron hoping it's the beginning of a much larger relationship with the United States, but by doing so immediately take the USD it gets from this deal and give it directly to China to pay its debts, as per the agreement with China? Or will they renege on the deal with Chevron, keep to the original agreement with China, and give Beijing first dibs on the oil that Chevron pumps? As few people in Venezuela want to completely throw China on the bus with this agreement. So which direction do you think Venezuela will go with this? This has long been a point of contention of China's with Venezuela. It had negotiated a number of loan deals with Venezuela uh, where a large part of the payback would come through discounted oil. So China loaned the money and basically Venezuela mortgaged its exports uh, at below market rates. But what's happened is as Venezuela's oil production has collapsed, as it realized that it needs hard currency uh, that it can't get from China because it's paying off a debt, it sought other markets. And so China has not gotten what it, it signed on the line, dotted line for. And so it's been increasingly frustrated with Venezuela um, and has not negotiated similar type loans. And it's it's been far less willing to extend lines of credit to, to Venezuela. So again, Venezuela you know, has not been a, a, a good partner for China and China has been looking elsewhere. And it's doing quite well now importing Russian oil. Thank you very much. So it doesn't really need Venezuela. And Russia used to be one of Venezuela's main sources of oil laundering, where they would sell oil to Russia, Russia would then stick a Made in Russia sticker onto the barrel, and then sell it into the market as Russian oil. So with Russia having such close ties with Caracas, how are they reacting to this move? Well, there's a couple issues here. The first is Russia actually, as you say, did help Venezuela before there were you know, full-on sanctions on Russia. Russia had helped Venezuela raise capital or, or, or stave off default on its international loans. The Russians have sort of filled that vacuum left by U.S. companies and was really poised to be able to take advantage of it. Now, now under Russian sanctions, uh, Russia can't do much with it. Um, it's obviously it's, uh, it itself is strapped for cash. And Russia is watching quite uh, nervously as Chevron and others jockey now to uh, start pumping oil and, and, and maybe even start to snap up some of the fields that are going to lie fallow because Russia can't take advantage of it. Under the previous leaders in Colombia and Brazil, Venezuela was seen as a pariah state and relations were quite sour between them. But now with Lula in Brazil and Petro in Colombia, do you think we'll see these two nations looking to build up their partnerships with Venezuela once again? 
ideology in Latin America often runs thicker than, well, oil, I guess. And in this case, Colombia and Brazil are competitors for Venezuela because both are, are oil exporting countries. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, Brazil would benefit from a spike in oil prices because it would make its uh, pre-sol reserves off the coast of Rio de Janeiro much more attractive to international investment. So there's a little bit of economic competition there, although actually Colombia is better positioned in terms of its regulatory environment to, to attract international investment, despite the fact that Petro wants to leave hydrocarbon production behind and engage in a green transition. But ideologically, these two governments, first of all, um, are sympathetic to the Maduro government. They're also very desirous, if you will, of seeing a, a smaller role of the U.S. in Latin America. This is true of Brazil in particular, which has always sort of fancied itself as both a regional and global power and as a means to, if you will, sort of rebalance U.S. and Western influence globally and represent the global South. So for both of these countries, you know, there, you know, Petro has opened up relations, normalized relations with Venezuela. That isn't even an ideological issue. The truth is with several million, over a million rather, Venezuelan refugees in Colombia, you know, they, they needed to have consular services and recognition that allowed them to be um, get their papers and free flow of commerce back and forth. It was important to Colombia um, and to Venezuelans living in Colombia. Brazil has signaled, or Lula has signaled that he's going to do the same. And what I suspect is they will try to broker a more moderate approach to, to Venezuela. Uh, but the truth is, is you know, the solution is twofold. First of all, the solution is going to ha probably have to come through negotiations. While they uh, may be willing to give Maduro a freer pass on issues such as human rights and the like, they are in no position to underwrite the, the Maduro government. And it's undeniable, both you know, whether it's the UN fact-finding mission or the International Criminal Court, which may be about to hand down indictments on crimes against humanity committed by the, the, the Venezuelan state, that this is you know, not a, a, a regime that shares a lot of the, the values of, of democratically elected governments, even Petros and, and Lula's. Now, the second thing, though, is the, the real game changer in all this are U.S. sanctions. And you know, Brazil and, and Colombia don't have sanctions on uh, Venezuela. And so they're going to have to, to, to really make this attractive to Venezuela. They're going to have to find some way to uh, either encourage the U.S. to cut back on its sanctions, which they won't do if there aren't, uh, or at least trying to uh, pressure or convince or cajole, if you will, the Maduro government into meeting some of the U.S. demands. Venezuela used to be one of the main power brokers in this area of the world particularly with its programs like Petro Caribe, which would see Venezuela supplying cheap oil to states in the Caribbean and Central America, in particular states like Nicaragua and Cuba. And this gave them a lot of leverage and a lot of good press with those countries. So if we see Venezuelan oil output rise up again, do you think that will usher in the re-emergence of programs like Petro Caribe coming out of Caracas? We're a long way off from Venezuela being able to become sort of transactional leader. <laughs> it's sort of ideological, but also transactional, in particular the Caribbean, again, for a number of reasons. First reason is, is that, ideologically speaking, the, the, the Chavista Maduro experiment, given the economic collapse pre-sanctions, is hardly a model that anyone would want to emulate. The second is that, again, it's going to take years, uh, as many as eight years for Venezuelan oil to be produced at the rate and refined at the rate that it was at the height of its diplomatic patronage program, if you will, of oil, through oil. So, you know, it, it won't be happening. I think that's fractured for good. And by the same token, a number of the, these Caribbean countries are now producing, although they may be shipping some Venezuelan components, but are now producing natural gas, which is a far more attractive hydrocarbon product than uh, Venezuela's uh, thick, sulfur-rich uh, crude. 
They may be able to, you know, prop up again, and Cuba would love this, so countries like Cuba, obviously Nicaragua as well, but for a number of other countries, and, and the U.S. has been trying for a long time to lay the groundwork for this, is that, you know, crude oil production and, and use is far less attractive than it was uh, even, say, 10 years ago. If we'd been doing this show back in 2016, we probably would have done an episode very similar to this discussing the normalizing relations between the United States and Cuba, as at the time, things really did seem to be going that way, with the issue culminating in Obama visiting the island later that year. But then the elections tightened up, and with Florida being such a crucial swing state for both the Democrats and the Republicans, both sides flipped their rhetoric and went back to the policy of punishing Cuba in the hopes of appealing to voters in Southern Florida. Well, with that in mind, the 2024 election is now just around the corner, so what is the risk of a similar event unfolding, with the US and Venezuela begin to make progress, and then, as polls tighten up, Washington changes its mind, and reverts back to the current policies? Do you think anti-communist voters in Southern Florida have the influence on US Latin American policy that they did back in 2016? So, first of all, the White House has been very clear that this is you know, not a giveaway to the Venezuelan government, the Maduro government. The, the initial round of sanctions relief, which basically were sanctions relief on Chevron, allowing Chevron to be able to produce and ship oil in its joint venture, with it not being able to actually pay for services to its partner, PDVSA, the Venezuelan oil company. That was a very limited sanctions relief, and it came about largely because of Chevron's lobbying of the U.S. You know, and it's been clear and repeated by the National Security Advisor for Latin America that any further concessions are going to depend on the Venezuelan government's committing to progress on the negotiations and meeting commitments that come out of those. And if those don't happen, and in fact, it's even written into the Senate bill, that in six months there could be snapback provisions on which, if there's not progress, the sanctions will go back to where they originally were. So the White House is already playing it safe. Um, but it's curious, though, even the, this rather limited concession didn't generate the sort of, of backlash from the usual suspects, if you will, of senators and politicians, primarily from Florida, who tend to support sanctions. By that, I mean Senator Marco Rubio or Senator Rick Scott. I think part of that is, is there's a certain recognition that maybe, maybe it's time to give something else a chance. The maximum pressure campaign of Donald Trump you know, really started in, in, in basically January, February of 2019. So it's been almost, four, well, it has been four years now. And there have been no improvements in human rights, no improvements on democratic progress in the country. So it's hard to argue that that was a successful strategy. So I think there's a certain element of wait and see. I say this though, but you know there are going to be elections, it's hard to believe, <laughs> in a year and a half in the United States. And I think once you start to get that, you'll begin to get, again, this sort of stoking of, in particular in Florida, animosity towards the Maduro government, towards anything that smacks of, of communism. And it will become, again, I think, a, a political football. The one change, I think, is that in the midterm elections in the United States last year, was that the uh, Florida, basically Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, won, solidly won Florida. Um, he won by over close to 20%, uh, including winning in Miami-Dade. What that means is Florida now is effectively a, a red state. Before it was a purple state, Bill Clinton won uh, Florida, Obama won Florida, both of them, both times they're, they're elected. Now it looks like it's gone solidly red. And so that means Basically, for a presidential election, even for senatorial elections or statewide elections, Democrats can just write it off. So, yeah, Rubio and others can bloviate all they want, 
about you know sellouts to communists and, and the like. The truth is right now, you know, Florida's 27 or 29 electoral votes don't really matter as much. Well, if that's the case, that Miami voters no longer hold U.S. Caribbean policy hostage, and we do see positive effects from the easing of sanctions with Venezuela, do you think that lays the ground for a future proper normalization of relations between the United States and Cuba? Yes, it would in a number of ways. First of all, it would begin to recognize that sanctions in and of themselves should not be the goal. This administration, but also the Trump administration, has applied many, many sanctions, mostly individual at the individual level in Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, Paraguay. Um, I think it is necessary to re-examine, and this could be, should this be successful, an opportunity to have a more nuanced understanding of how, when, and where to apply sanctions, and then also when to leverage them effectively. The stipulations from the United States for the continuation of these talks is that Venezuela looks to improve their democratic processes before the country's 2024 elections. But we both know that improve is a very flexible word and can be easily stretched if it whatever narrative the United States is hoping for. So with that in mind, where do you think the US will end up drawing the line on the word improved on this one? There are no clear benchmarks. No one's saying this is a roadmap and you have to pass this milepost and this would happen, this milepost. Although there's you know, an implicit one. You know, one of them is, is, is basically Venezuela returning in earnest to the negotiating table. There are negotiations uh, in Mexico uh, that are being brokered by uh, the Norwegians between a delegation of opposition uh, leaders, a diverse group, uh, what's called the Unitary Platform, and uh, government representatives. They met in, at the end of 2022 and agreed to basically unfreeze around $3 billion worth of assets to be provided to the UN, United Nations, for humanitarian assistance in, in, in Venezuela. The problem is that the next agenda item on that uh, in those negotiations was going to be looking at issues of politics, human rights, and institutional reform. In Venezuela, the, the, the government of, of, of Maduro, Maduro himself, has said now until those $3 billion or so are unfrozen, they're not going to go back to the negotiating table. And they, this is they're clearly playing for time for a number of reasons. But you know, they know that these assets are parked here and there. It is going to be a difficult task because they're not only in, just in one bank and banks tend to be very risk averse. And so they're going to try to avoid getting dinged by uh, U.S. sanctions. So this could take some time, and, and the Maduro government knows it. So they're clearly stalling. And in the meantime, these larger issues of 200 or so political prisoners, uh, preparations for the 2024 elections are really on hold. Originally, the idea was the Venezuelan government would return to the negotiating table after the humanitarian assistance, and then things would start to be negotiated and implemented, particularly on human rights and human rights, and inviting maybe a pre-election monitoring mission from the European Union. That's not going to go anywhere right now, at least on the negotiating table. And so until that happens, there's no other sanctions relief on the table. Well, let's talk about the election 2024. With or without reform, who do you think is likely to win that election? Two things. One is the, the Venezuelan government needs to create a series of reforms and conditions for a relatively free and fair election. The European Union monitored the November 2021 local and regional elections and produced about 20 produced 23 recommendations for improving the electoral conditions and for evening the playing field. Uh, those including strengthening the independence of the judicial sector, reforming the electoral council. I'm guaranteeing freedom of expression and also no prohibitions on or arbitrary prohibitions on the banning of opposition candidates or opposition parties, which have been done in the past. 
And so far, the Maduro government has shown no interest in doing this. The, the European Union is sort of is waiting to go back and trying to monitor this and try to update it. Um, they haven't heard anything. And so that has to happen. And I really think if the, if the Maduro government were serious, even if it didn't go back to the negotiating table, which it should and should have to, it would start to work with credible international monitors on the electoral conditions before 2024 to be able to uh, send signals of, a, of, a, of, a, of its intention to at least clean up its act when it comes to the electoral process and try to reintegrate itself into the community of legitimately elected governments. But there's also the issue, as you mentioned, Michael, of the opposition. There's, you know, it is a, a very fractious lot. Um, it made I would say, I don't know whether this may be more so or less so with the dissolution of the Guaido government in, in the end of December, but you have a handful of candidates who are all going to be jockeying. The question is, is how, I, how is the opposition going to come together and select a leader and cohere around that leader? And there are questions of having primaries, doing it by polls. We really don't know, but they're definitely, I mean, in order to present a viable alternative in opposition and have any chance of winning, the opposition has to come together. And it, you know, you in the opposition, you have center left to extreme right. And they're going to have to agree on a set of candidates and divvy up even not, not just who will be the president, but other potential positions that could be up for grabs. And that's not clear how that's going to be done. It's not even clear actually who would monitor it too. There's, you know, who would oversee that process? Is it just simply done internally among the opposition? Is there external support or monitoring efforts? There's a lot of questions. And to be honest, for in both cases, the government and the opposition, there isn't a heck of a lot, heck of a lot of time. So we haven't seen the, the the right amount of preparations on both sides. This situation was complicated, as you said, by the disillusion of the interim government led by Juan Guaido. This was the government that popped up during the anti-Maduro protests and was seen by many nations as the legitimate government of Venezuela. When it was set up back around 2018. At the time, Juan Guaido wasn't even the most popular figure in the country, but he was picked and received the backing from countries ranging from the US to the UK and many other Western nations. Slowly, slowly since then, more and more countries have quietly ditched the interim government and instead gone back to recognizing the Maduro government as the legitimate rule of Venezuela, which, some would argue, shows a lack of long-term commitment by the US toward Venezuelan politics. Is there a worry that this backflip of policy may sour the Venezuelan public's opinion of more Western-friendly candidates. As Guaido was picked as the representative of the opposition, even though he wasn't the most popular candidate. Or B, that this move may make any Western-friendly candidates throughout Latin America think twice before throwing their hat in with the West, knowing that the West may offer them the world today, but when push comes to shove may throw them aside and down the track simply shrug and switch sides again. How do you think that will affect the US political standing within the region going forward? It's a good question. It's a difficult question, Michael. You know, first of all, I don't think the, the Biden administration has said very clearly this is really among the, the opposition. And, and the Biden administration is going to be less overt in putting its fingers on the scale to tip them in any way, unlike the Trump administration with Guaido. So I think a lot of this will have to be resolved internally among the opposition. Um, but I think the second thing, too, is, as you say, you know, how, who, you know, how does the next opposition leader who's tapped to be the figurehead or the international sort of symbol of, of opposition unity know that he or she will not be then, you know, sold down the river. First of all, I think it's a reflection of how unfortunately interventionist the U.S. and the international community has been on this, largely driven by its frustration by the divisions within the opposition. Not, but um, I think the second thing is uh, there's never, there's not going to be again 
the very performative, public, aggressive effort to put someone forward as an interim government. This will be just the next person who comes forward, however chosen, will just be a candidate like any other candidate. So there's going to be less of a risk for that person to have all of the trappings of a presidency, but none of the actual territory, for example, and then just watch their, their international support slink from six, almost 60 governments that would recognize Guaido at the time to less than 10 by December. So there, there isn't that risk of the over-the-top um, aspect. You know, I think that's a positive thing. And, and I'll say this, I, I originally, when the Guaido government was, was announced and demonstrations swept Caracas in January 2019, I was one of the ones who thought, oh, this is a great idea. It breaks the deadlock. It, it demonstrates or provides an alternative to the very clearly fraudulent elections that chose Maduro in 2018. You know, by, by March, I changed my mind. And I think, honestly, the whole Guaido experiment will go down as one of the biggest failures in diplomatic history within the region. So I'll finish on this and give you both of the arguments I've seen floating around on this issue. Is it more dangerous to continue to let Venezuela struggle and fall deeper and deeper into debt with China until it reaches a point where it really has nowhere to go but to give huge concessions to Beijing? Or is it more dangerous to try and bring Venezuela back in from the cold and build it up to once again become a strong regional power? A power that will directly and inevitably compete with the United States for influence throughout Central America and the Caribbean. What do you think the best course of action for the United States is going forward on this issue? My, my answer always in this is, you know, what's the alternative? What, what, you know, show me what has worked in the past. Show me where sanctions have worked. Cuba... More than 60 years, we had, uh, 1961, 1962, we had sanctions on Cuba, um, and then they're eventually converted into law. You know, I, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but uh, Cuba's not more democratic or more human rights protecting than it was in 1962. So if, you know, we think that that's a model that's worthy of emulation, I'd first of all tell you to wake up and stop smoking whatever you're smoking uh, and realize that, you know, sanctions in the extreme are just at best a clumsy tool. At worst, they're also a very cruel tool. So yes, if we wanted to maintain sanctions to keep Venezuela weak and marginal, that's good. But at what human cost? Do we just simply let it fester under sanctions? The second question is, you know, sanctions really only matter if we think they can be used as a tool to further political progress. So how do we do that? You know, even if, and I'm not advocating for this, alleviating sanctions in some specific areas to incentivize a return to the table as a carrot for better behavior, if you will, on the part of the better human rights respecting behavior, to be clear, by the part of the government. That holds the possibility of edging them closer and closer to free and fair democratic elections that can provide a transition. Or maybe Maduro would be win re-election or whoever he, he chooses as his successor in 2024 to run uh, on his behalf. Could they potentially be re-elected? Could then, in a credibly free and fair election in the U.S. to meet its obligations and roll back sanctions. That's true. But at least, at the very least, one would hope that there is then a toolbox that, A, should that successor Maduro government, you know, the, then revert back to the autocratic practices, those sanctions could return. And or should they, they not, then we can try to find a government that we can work with. Right now, isolation isn't working. And, and you hear this even from European governments who would recognize Guaido and now don't have official diplomatic missions. They, they don't have official ambassadors. They may have missions there, but they're not. They, they're limited in how they can engage with the government. Their hands are tied when it comes to discussing matters of human rights abuses, when it comes to discussing matters of elections, when it comes to discussing matters of 
illicit activities, whether it's gold mining, whether it's narcotics trafficking, you know, in many other cases, you know, even in South Africa, for example, to take rather successful case of sanctions, they weren't so extreme, they prohibited the international community from being able to engage with the government to try to push it towards an exit and a change in its really tragic, egregious human rights policies. So, everything here seems like a long game, requiring long-term vision about the relations. It's issues like building up Pedavesa that will be in waiting eight years until enough of its oil hits the market to make any sort of difference. It's decisions like supporting democracy within the country that may still see Maduro win an election and gain legitimacy until the opposition can coalesce around a central figure. It's decisions that lessening Chinese influence here may mean helping the Venezuelans meet their contractual obligations in the short term. It's thoughts that in order for Venezuela to not rely so much on supporting the narcotics trade, they may have to help Caracas to build a robust economy. An economy that will almost inevitably directly compete with the US for influence throughout the region later on. These moves here, however small, may be the first crossroad down a long and somewhat dirty path. And there are sure to be steps down that path that do warrant criticism. After all, why should we build up the economy of a man who has committed such a litany of human rights abuses? We really shouldn't feel good about moves that will inevitably make him richer. But with that in mind, I ask you the other question. What is the alternative here? Do we want another 60 years of policy that, like in Cuba, will stand for a time long past? Do we want to wait until Venezuela has rebuilt an economy completely detached from the US, meaning that Washington goes into negotiations with no influential tools left, short of a declaration of war against a jungle-covered, Chinese-aligned, well-armed, almost 30 million strong enemy? If we're eventually going to do this, do we want to come to the negotiating table at that point? It seemed pretty obvious from early on in the administration that Washington wanted to change the status quo here. And with the war in Ukraine and its ensuing oil crisis, they found their excuse. Is justifying these moves under the guise of the war in Ukraine a cynical move? Yeah, but should Biden let this moment pass and continue on with the status quo that everyone knows isn't working? Well, that's the question currently sitting on the desks of Biden and Maduro, and the window of opportunity for answering that question is quickly closing. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. We're very glad to be doing another episode on Venezuela. In fact, the last time we covered the country was all the way back at episode 12, a seemingly lifetime ago. And I can tell you that then, compared to now, was like researching a completely different country economically. In any case, it just shows you how long we've been doing this show, how quickly geopolitics can change, and that we're more than willing to revisit older topics. So lots of content coming up. And if you want to keep up to date with that content as it comes out, as well as everything else we're up to, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeLeadOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help myself and the team keep this show going. And speaking of Patreons, I want to give a heartfelt thanks to Logan Rosenmeyer, Michael Henson, Drew Black, Eduardo Troiner, Kieran Hardiman, Hugh Mann, Christopher Mastroianni, and Kevin Pierce. 
who are the latest patrons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like these guys, whose donations really do keep this show going, and we can't thank them enough for all their support. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, and you like what we do here at the show, we really would appreciate it. But for now, to the people I just mentioned, this episode on Venezuela is completely thanks to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Reclaiming Human Rights in a Changing World Order by this week's guest, Chris Sabatini, for a nuanced look at the complicated world of human rights policy. The second is Things Are Never So Bad That They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela by William Neumann, for a look at the downfall of the Venezuelan economy. And the third is Crude Nation, for a look on how the oil industry corrupted Venezuela from the inside. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Phil Gunson, Ben Norton, and Chris Sabatini, an absolutely smashing panel this week, and a huge thanks to my staff, Weber Carr, the producer, Barry Grace, Daniel Luzivella, Genevieve Donnellan May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tannen, our media director, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent. It's this team here that enables us to go after the stories we go after and produce the show we produce. And I cannot thank each and every one of them enough. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. Until then, thank you for listening and good night. The views and opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of our guests, Michael, and the Redline Podcast. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.